0: This episode of A Life Curated is sponsored by Minka, a fantastic London-based jewellery business specialising in quality, handmade heirloom pieces. Each piece is designed and made in the UK, led by striking colourful gemstones sourced from all over the world. As a trained gemologist, founder Lucy Crowther personally handpicks each gemstone for its clarity, rarity, and vibrancy. To create luxurious, one of a kind and of bespoke pieces. Inspired by cities from all over the world, the focus is on making fuss-free designs with simple, clean lines and a good amount of gold given the gemstone, the platform it deserves. From exquisite rings and necklaces to earrings and bracelets, each piece is designed to be loved, layered, and worn every day. To explore Minka's stunning collections or inquire about bespoke pieces and the reworking of existing heirlooms, head to the website at minkajewels.com. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of A Life Curated. My name is Nolan Brown. I'm an art advisor of the podcast. In this very special jewellery episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by the World Authority on Jewellery History, the author of 30 books and leading jewellery journalist Vivian Becker. At 18, Vivian took a holiday job working with an antiques jewellery dealer, stumbling on a world filled with passionate characters, a world that embraced her and where she subsequently stayed for three years. Deciding not to go to university, Vivian then found a job as a fashion assistant on a woman's magazine. And whilst there a chance meeting at a photocopying machine with the editor of Antiques Collector magazine, Vivian pitched him an article on antique jewellery, which he accepted, and her journalism career took off. After a few years working in the magazine, Vivian decided to go freelance and wrote her first book in her 20s, Antique and 20th Century Jewellery, which is still the standard work on the topic. Vivian has written 29 other volumes, including one with US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, The Impossible Collection of Jewelry, Cartier, Panther, Bulgari, The Joy of Gens, and many, many more. With her regular comment in the FT, Vivian writes about everything from Lawrence Graff to emerging designers and is regularly commissioned by other top titles from the world's press. For four decades, Vivian has curated exhibitions, judged awards and lectured, mentored young designers and guided connoisseurs. Recorded from Vivian's home, this is a live curated with Vivian Becker. Vivian thank you so much for joining. Um, I'm absolutely thank thrilled. You. We have a nice bit of history uh, together mm-hmm. and I'm delighted that you're on board.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: We'll get into the jury in a second mm-hmm. but the first question I always ask was what was your very first art memory?
1: Um, actually it's a good question because I was quite young I must have been nine or ten and I saved up my pocket money and I bought a book which I still have upstairs on Renoir. I don't know how I discovered the Impressionists but I'm um, I absolutely loved them. The funny story about that was that I took it to school, yeah, because it was a primary school, so it must have been before 11, and I thought everyone else would be as enthusiastic as I was, and of course all the boys just giggled at the nudes. <laughs> and they, they, they turned the pages, and I didn't think I burst into tears. But, um, yeah, that was that's my first
0: Wonderful. art purchase. So it was an art book. Yes. What was your first jewellery memory?
1: So... I- I often think about that. There's no tradition in the family jewellery. My, my mother really didn't have any jewellery to speak of. But my father came from Notting Hill and I would regularly go with him to the Portobello Road area. And I think, you know, walked up and down the, the antiques market and he bought me a ring again, which I, I still have. Uh, it was just a costume jewellery ring, but it looked antique, a little cluster with fake turquoise and... Um, and you sort yeah have it. treasures. I do still have oh, it, yeah, somewhere. Yes. Do you, yeah, do you ever yeah. wear it? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> but, uh, occasionally when I clear out the cupboards I come across it and I remember. Yeah.
0: Was that a moment that really got you into jewelry or was it just a nice moment from father to daughter?
1: No, I'm afraid to say that I just stumbled accidentally on, on jewellery. As you said in the intro that and I I don't know if you want if you're ready to move on to that, you know, when I took this holiday job completely impulsively. Um, I just I loved antiques I definitely loved art and antiques don't know where it came from but I just wandered into one of London's indoor markets Uh, it doesn't exist anymore
0: in Notting Hill in no
1: in 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 the West End it was in St Christopher's Place it was called the Barrett Street Antique Supermarket and it was the original the original one that was started by Alfie that's Benny Gray's Benny Gray who was the king of all the um, indoor antiques markets and I was incredibly shy I was uh, cripplingly shy but I just walked in and just said to the first stall holder does anyone need someone to work for them and they said yes I think there's someone around the corner and there happened to be antique jewellery dealers so it was that was an accident.
0: Although you're crippling shy you were very welcomed and you loved You spent three years working for the Antiquity. Yes, I did.
1: I mean, I think that's why no one really cared that I was shy. No one, you know, they didn't really notice and they didn't care where I came from. And I think it was in my last year at school, I was being pushed by my school to be very academic and pushed in the other direction by my, by my family, who just wanted me to settle down and get married. So I think there was that push and pull, which um, made me decide, yeah, just to immerse myself in this incredible world that, I, that I'd stumbled on. And they were all eccentrics. In a way, they were all like me, that they didn't fit into the world, you know, where they came from. And um, they are all escaping from from something. A lot of out of work actors. I mean, it was. I have to say, it was a long time ago, and it was very very different from today's uh, antiques it world. Completely different. I mean, they're so so eccentric. No one really took any notice, <laughs> you know, in in the nicest possible way. And they welcomed me with with open arms. Yeah.
0: And I'm amazed for someone who is so academic, who loves researching, loves studying and has written some best-selling, many best-selling books, that you put university on hold and then shunned it and actually, in a way, was, was very, despite being shy, was very bold and quite entrepreneurial. You just went your way.
1: You know, when I think back on it, yes, I do think, yes, I was. I was bold just to walk in and and take a job with people I didn't know in a, in a really strange atmosphere. And, uh, yeah, I think I just I didn't really know which way to go with my career. And I think that, you know, in a way, this prevented me having to make a decision. And I didn't if I went to university, I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. In fact, what I really wanted, I always wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to do communication studies, which was you know very new at the time. Uh, and I was accepted on on a course, and we went through lots of interviews to get on it, but then I just decided to to stay in the in the antiques world
0: and Did the writing come from your father from your mother? No idea, wow,
1: no idea, no idea. Just loved writing essays at school. I've still got some of my very <laughs> embarrassing notebooks <laughs> um yeah just just loved it.
0: working for the antiques dealer um as well as buying and selling, did you train your eye there? did you
1: oh. Absolutely. I learned everything there. And so much as I do, I do regret uh, not going to university. That's true. But on the other hand, I had an education of a kind that it would be impossible today or even even at the time. And I learned everything, everything about jewellery history. People were so generous with their knowledge. And as I said, it was, it was a time that just doesn't exist anymore. People would come around all day, every day, often with these treasures which they pulled out of their pockets. They would talk to me about it. There were specialist collectors, specialist dealers, and I was sitting in my little booth because the the dealers had taken another big booth, so I had my own little booth, and I could just handle the jewellery all day, every day. My job was to put it out in the showcase, which I loved. Um, I'd look at the marks, I'd examine it. I was handling jewellery. day, So it was an incredible education, both from the point of view of learning about jewellery and jewellery history and also just an incredible experience to meet all these fun, eccentric, warm people.
0: And just handling the jewels and seeing them and just being next to them, something you wouldn't have done at university. It's an amazing apprenticeship, effectively.
1: Yeah, it really was. I think it was, you know, it was unique and much as I regret not going to university, I treasure that time. I'm still friends. Uh, I'm still friends with the with the dealer I worked with, and it's so it immersed me in the trade. So yeah. you know, I still know I still know those people. I still know the dealers, even if it's you know, the children, sons, and daughters of the original dealers. I mean, for instance, when I go to Gem Geneve, you know, which is the Geneva International Fair, which is really full of antique and vintage jewelry dealers, I feel totally and in, instantly at home.
0: You're a very successful journalist, a very successful author, but you also have something called Vivarium. Can you tell me more about that?
1: Yes, so Vivarium is, i um, not really sure what to call it, a specialist consultancy. And I have a, a partner in Vivarium that's Diana Cordell, and I've known Diana for a long time, actually since I first started writing about antiques. She comes from the art world, and together we represent individual, independent contemporary jewellers from around the world. And the idea is to create a different jewellery experience, different jewellery purchasing experience, uh, one that's more immersive and educational. So at every Vivarium event, I will always give a talk or I'll be in conversation with the designer and try and set the jewels in in context, in a social, historical,
0: cultural context. And you and you saw some you, you scour the world. Did a lot of people come to you. How, how does it well, work? Exactly? You well, know,
1: it's something that that I do. That I you know that I've been doing for a long time. Obviously, part of my job as a journalist is to find new talent, write about new talent, and you know I love it. And I guess I'm always looking at the contemporary jewelers with from the historical perspective to see if are these going to be the the antiques of the future. Of I know it's a bit of a cliche, but are they going to be the heirlooms? And I guess I'm incredibly fussy, so I look for a designer with a really well-defined uh, point of view, a very definite point of view. There has to be that certain impassioned approach to their work. They have to be doing something innovative, but I love it when there's a kind of echo of the past, You, when clearly they they know what's gone before, because I do always believe that you can't really do something new unless you know what's gone before yeah I just yeah I'm always looking and sometimes they find me sometimes I find them and yeah we love it.
0: You mentioned Echo of the Past you have a love and passion for Art Nouveau Jewellery. René Lalique? Yes. Tell me about that.
1: Yes so that is that's it is my passion it's also my academic speciality Uh, and there's a nice story around that as you mentioned my first book which I wrote yeah in my early 20s and the book is now an antique as I am (laughs) afraid and when that book was published I was invited to go and speak at a jewellery course a summer jewellery course in in Maine in the University of Maine in the United States which was a bit of an adventure for me and it was run by a uh, passionate collector of Art Nouveau jewelry, who was an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, I became really friendly with with him, his wife, and and the family. And on one of the one of the visits, I went back to Maine for several summers where I, I lectured. He took me to see his his Art Nouveau jewelry collection, which were, which was wonderful, and said, "You know, there isn't a book on it," and so I just. Began researching and was commissioned to write my book on Art Nouveau jewellery.
0: When you were in Maine, did the Madeleine Albright connection come via being in the States? Can you please? No, that me was that? much, much
1: later. Because in Maine was, you know, that was in my I was in my early twenties when I when I started doing that. No, Madeleine Albright happened much later. And again, this all seems to be a story. I remember I had my young my daughter was was a was a baby at the time. And I was in the kitchen making um, the um, fish fingers, as you do, for, for her supper. And the phone rang and someone said, it's, you know, I'm Madeleine Albright's chief of staff you know, feeding the baby. <laughs> oh, yes. <you> know, um, <laughs> And yes, yeah, she said, uh, I, I don't know if you know, but Secretary Albright had written a series of books, wonderful, serious books um, on, you know, politics, on diplomacy, and she was an avid collector of brooches and she wanted to write a book about her brooches. And it was actually Joel Rosenthal of Jarre who had put her in contact with me. And yeah, it was an amazing honour, wonderful privilege and, and, you know, an incredible experience. Yeah.
0: And you, yeah. already, you gelled with her? I, and-
1: yes, I said yes. I had to agree. It's like royalty in a way. You had to agree before they actually then come and make you the proper offer. You oh, know, right. So they can't offer you in case you say no. But of course I wasn't going to say no. And went to Washington, spent quite a lot of time with Secretary Albright. Oh, actually, the first time, also, I had to meet her. She was in London. I was absolutely petrified. <laughs> <laughs> you know to go and meet her we had tea she wore one of her she wonderful big bug brooch and good taste in brooches yeah she did she had yeah. a, nice, a nice collection yeah she had yes I mean it was um as the book relates every brooch had a had a story to tell a story of diplomacy and it was a very democratic collection of course um mainly costume jewelry really eclectic but yeah we got on very well and so, yes, then I was invited to Washington. I spent several days with her in Washington, in Georgetown, going through the collection, talking to her. And what an amazing um, experience. It was. it was. Yeah, it was a real, real Lucky privilege. Her. Real <laughs> privilege, you know.
0: So. I want to bring it back to the curation. You've created many, many exhibitions. You also consulted for Sorovsky for yes, many years. Yes. Talk me through the process of curating a jewelry exhibition.
1: For me, the high point and the the most important exhibition was, as you mentioned, the exhibition of the jewellery of René Lalique, which uh, was uh, organised by the the Goldsmiths' Company. That was in 1987, so I was still quite young. And that followed on from the publication of the book on Art Nouveau jewellery. And, oh, my God, that was, yeah, what an incredible, incredible opportunity. And for... um, probably 2 years i mean my little flat was you know Lalique central just calling wow. know, everyone and and this is where all my wonderful friends in the in the antique jewelry world were just so enthusiastic and so helpful and everyone knew someone who knew someone else who had a who had a wonderful piece of Lalique and also we were lucky enough to be able to borrow the jewels from the Gulbenkian Museum. I don't know if you know, the the most astonishing collection of jewels by Lalique is in the Gulbenkian Museum in in Lisbon. And Kalust Gulbenkian, who was a great um, oil tycoon, oil magnate, known as Mr. 10%, I think he was, (laughs) um, he was uh, also an amazing collector and Loved Lalique's work at the time, so he commissioned. He gave Lalique, you know, completely free hand. It's the commission I think that every artist, every one of my designers would dream of. Money no object. Didn't have to be commercial. He just gave him a free hand to design a series of well over a hundred uh, jewels, and they were they are in the Gulbenkin Museum, yeah. and they're extraordinary. I think they're of course the finest, most spectacular art jewels ever or yet let's say
0: yeah have you got any uh, exhibitions coming out that you want to curate or you're involved in
1: um so I've been invited by the jewelry museum in Vicenza in Vicenza which is a beautiful city in in Italy full of Palladian villas and and buildings and because it's the goldsmith city they have a, a museum of jewelry and they've asked me to be on the board and to curate a a Temporary exhibition there, but uh, not hundred percent sure what it's going to be. But yeah,
0: just got a chance there anyway. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Find it's, out. Yes, yeah. I want to move on to the jewelry world. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you love and what do you lament about the jewelry world?
1: What I love, yeah, the the people definitely. I um, I love seeing beautiful objects every day. I think it you know. Often on a Monday morning when I'm, you know, sitting down and or in a jeweler or with a collector or seeing beautiful objects, I think, gosh, it's lucky I'm not just working in a bank <laughs> somewhere. So I think I'm incredibly fortunate to, you know, be involved with beauty all day, every day. I love the depth, the cultural depth of jewellery and all its meanings. And again, I often think had I been directed to, say, furniture dealers or porcelain dealers in the Barrett Street Antique Supermarket, would I remain so enthralled for so long? And probably not because, you know, jewellery, I think it's the earliest form of human creative expression. It's completely universal. It has so many roles. You know, it's it's not bling. It's not for me it's not surface ornament it's it's talismanic it's personal um and i think it charts social and cultural history
0: What a wonderful answer. <laughs> I don't
1: know that that but um, yeah and it's I'm endlessly from fascinating yeah. um yeah.
0: and lament is anything that you think it could be it could improve or
1: About the jewelry world. Yeah. Yes i think i think it's um it's a strong point and a weak point it's 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 very old fashioned mm. it's very let's say it's traditional it's very slow moving and rather insular so i guess if i had one wish and this is in terms of contemporary jewelry i feel that it should be much more design driven and i compare it to contemporary furniture or industrial design objects all the objects in our homes now are of some kind of design content, and
0: but jewelry is I, not I,
1: generally design-driven in the same way. It sort of follows its own rules, which are often too traditional, too steeped in the past. And I'm not talking about history; mm. I'm talking about not being relevant to the world around it. And that's something that I look for in in we look for in our vivarium designers. Uh, a designer who can really pick up and capture our moment in time, and translate it um, in a way that other design today does.
0: This leads me on to my my, my next question. Actually, perfectly. What do you look for in a jewel?
1: Artistry, um, seriously good design. It's hard to it's hard to define what seriously good design. I guess it changes, you know, according to individual taste. But a design that where all the elements of a jewel really work together, where they're totally integrated, so that the concept, the design, the material, the craftsmanship—they all have to be there, at the service of the of the concept of what the designer wants to say. Like often you'll find a motif, a heart, and then it's got some diamonds on the top where it could function perfectly well without the diamonds, mm. for instance. So I think that materials have to be part of the, of the whole concept. I kind of know it when I, when I see it.
0: <laughs> of course, it's mm. um, yeah, another great answer. Um, in my research uh, and with my art background um, and you know going to the likes of Bogusian and looking at Sotheby's and Christie's, I was astonished to see the prices achieved for certain jewels. Do you believe in jewellery as an investment?
1: No, I don't. I sometimes think of jewelry as the poor little rich girl of the luxury world. You know, much misunderstood because I think it really is misunderstood. People see it as as purely as investment. I mean, obviously you can't get away from from the investment aspect, but no, I don't think
0: it should be. But the most expensive was sold for seventy two million dollars. I mean, that's that's up there with the top paintings of the world as well.
1: Well, it should be. I mean, I think. I mean. Good antique or vintage jewelry is is still very underpriced. I think it's very undervalued, say compared to contemporary art. And Lalique is a great artist, you know, in in any field. And I think it was only some years ago at Christie's that one pendant reached nearly a, a million. Um, must be wow. you know a million dollars. But you know, it it deserved. It definitely deserved
0: that. And I, th- I hope I get this right. There was a Dali. Design jewel that reached say, 1.2 or 2 oh, million acres yes. recently.
1: Yeah, it's that's different. It's a whole different genre of jewellery, isn't it? You know?
0: um, I'm being extremely sceptical. And do you think jewellery maison can sign jewels straight to the auction house so that they reach extra- astronomical prices? So that it kind of adds the value of the house, adds the value of everything, the prestige? I just had a thought pop into my mind when I saw all these extraordinary, and where they came from. No, I wouldn't Which like no, to say that they <laughs> that they did it. that.
1: No, I think some individual jewelers have have t- taken that route as a strategy, and and it has really and it has really worked. Yeah, I think for for individual designer jewelers um, or artist jewelers to sell a piece at auction at a very high price. Really establishes them in the marketplace, so that's important. But probably more for that, I, I don't. I don't think that you know. I don't think uh, the Maisons would.
0: No, no, silly me. Do thinking that. that. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't like to um, comment. I. What are the challenges and changes facing the jewelry world? And I read all your articles on the FT, which are incredibly informative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are the challenges and changes facing the jewelry world for now and for the future? Do you think?
1: the huge challenge is how to make jewelry relevant to to new generations and of course that's a, it's a, it's a challenge that that crops up not in every generation but every so often i think it happened in the 191960s when there was you know huge social and cultural and artistic revolution and jewelry was just not relevant to the younger generation and of course at the time then as now new wealth was being created it was in the hands of different people you know you had medium moguls the the models the rock stars the rock stars became great jewelry patrons but they wanted something very different in their jewelry they wanted it to relate to their lifestyle and i think we're seeing the same sort of challenge today and that's because jewelry tends to be so traditional as i say it's, it's 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 strong point and it's and a weakness how do you make jewelry relevant to to gen z buyers this is it was the same thing was being asked of millennials that was it's it's the question i mean you do get some gen z buyers who still want to buy into the brands and they'll buy the you know, cartier clash they'll buy the love bangle they'll buy the alhambra and then others who don't want to be dictated to by marketing, you know, they don't want to be marketed to. I think they're very resistant to to marketing. So, yeah, that's a challenge.
0: I was up in Scotland last week and my sister has a hot tub and I'm sitting in the hot tub with my beloved nephews, Mungo and Aubrey, Mungo just left Eton he got three A stars he's about to go to Edinburgh he's a wonderful wonderful lad and he took off his top jumped into the hot tub and he's got a really thick silver chain around his neck
1: <laughs> yeah
0: and I when I was 18 I was quite rebellious had a had a diamond stud and I thought why did I wear that because I'm quite vain and I wanted to wear it but in my complete ignorance, and my apologies if I'm um, generalising, but I always thought thick silver, thick gold chains were for big, barreled, hairy men walking down the beach.
1: Medallion Man.
0: Medallion Man, thank you so much. <laughs> but you mentioned the Gen Z, which I think mm. he falls into. I get quite confused. Mm. Yes, the I think things. he does, yeah. And <laughs> I, I, I kind of loved it, mm. but, you know, he loves his hip-hop. Uh, he's brilliant at Chinese, but he had the silver chain. Mm. And I just find that kind of... Wonderful and interesting at the same time. I would never associate a silver chain with.
1: Oh, I think it's actually. I love it. I think it's wonderful. Someone's doing the
0: marketing right yeah. somewhere. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, of course, that, that's all part of you know gender fluidity, which is a um, huge mega trend of our of our time. And, uh, yeah, I find it really interesting because also jewellery has charted changes in ideals of femininity through mm-hmm. the ages. That's, again, particular interest of mine. And that's, you know, it's reflected in, um, in today's, you know, gender uh, ambiguity at the beginning, gender fluidity now. And I think it's wonderful. It's amazing how suddenly a look suddenly looks right, you know, appeals to the eye. And I just, I think... Men wearing jewellery on the red carpet, wearing necklaces, pearls. I, I actually Paris I love styles it. the way. I love it, yeah. And, well, you know, of course, the Maharajas did it, and, and it was only in the late Renaissance that women began wearing as much jewellery as men. It was Before that, it was always the male who wore jewellery.
0: Mungo, a pair of earrings are on their way to you for Christmas. <laughs> um, let's bring it back to... Well, firstly, there, there's a lot of emerging young designers listening to this. And it's it's, you know, a million pound question, but how does an emerging jewelry designer break through and what do you look for? I know you touched upon it a little bit in Vivarium and what your tastes mm. are, but you know, I've got so many incredibly talented artists friends and the art world is so insular it's impossible mm-hmm. what three pieces of advice would you give an emerging jewelry designer trying to make it
1: well first of all I have to say that again that was one of the motivations in starting in establishing vivarium because the distribution maybe that's another weakness of the of the jewelry industry is the distribution is so limited um, in what sense well where do you, where do they sell i mean it's either the big brands and the maisons and they only sell their own their own designs yeah. Or, I mean, it has expanded in that department stores now all have very good jewellery departments where they will sell jewels by independent individual designers. But it's still not enough. Often that's handled on a cell or it's on consignment basis. And it is very, very difficult for individual designers to find their clients you know to find a, a retailer to know where and and how to sell and it's that was definitely huge motivation in in starting vivarium
0: my ex jahara's who you uh, know from many years ago it was always about getting her clients in front of people, of, of journalists like you uh huge voices like yourself but also on celebrities mm. and then they go on to you know the x factor or, or whatnot the red carpet um yeah. is that still the way to get noticed
1: you no know, i'm the wrong person to ask about that. I'm kind of, look, you have to live with it. I, I don't really like celebrity endorsement. I, well, it's not that I don't like it. I think it's become too important. Yeah. I'm personally not convinced by it, yeah. but, yeah, it, it is important. But, you know, more, more important is, is to find the, the route towards the clients, your target audience. And, yeah, you asked me for some advice. I think that young designers need to think about that more carefully before they put a very expensive collection together. I think they need to think about the, the route to market. Yes, celebrity endorsement, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, it helps. I think it's changing now. I think it's quite interesting to see that maybe it's less about just someone, a, a celebrity wearing a piece of jewellery. It's more in a cultural context that it's more in television programmes. You know, Sex and the and the City and the sequel being prime examples of that. So I think people, I'm hoping, maybe this is wishful thinking. People want to see the jewelry in a more interesting context than just being put on a celebrity, especially when we know that celebrities are just paid, of course,
0: to, say to wear that. the jewelry. No,
1: yeah. It doesn't. It's you know, it's not part of their persona or image as it was with the great movie stars of Hollywood's golden years. Hmm. So I. think... Think it is, yeah. Perhaps it has to appear more in an important television show or in films, or you know, less just a celebrity wearing it.
0: So I, I know a lot of people, a lot of artists who sell, and galleries who sell art via Instagram. Mm-hmm. That is definitely a way to sell mm-hmm. anything, really. But I almost feel that you know, if you're trying to buy an engagement ring, you wouldn't necessarily buy it straight away. You would just you know, there's a whole process go, going through it. So, is Instagram still a, a viable way of selling fine jewelry?
1: Again, I'm probably as yes, you know, you know, Nolan. Not, I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm a dinosaur. Um, you have eight
0: thousand more followers than me.
1: <laughs> um, so, I mean, I know that it is an effective way mm. to to sell jewelry. I. Think, unfortunately, it, it removes the emotion from it. You talk about engagement yeah. rings. I mean, it's interesting, and I've also worked a lot as a trend forecaster, so I always have my antennae primed for um social and cultural trends. And there's been a huge trend towards the proposal ritual, which is you know quite wonderful. Very elaborate proposals are going on. And the engagement ring is is central to that. So it's such it's such an emotional purchase, and I think all jewellery should be an emotional purchase. Absolutely, I think it's fine if you know the designer, you you know the jewel, you, you see something on Instagram, you know how it's made, and if it's your first and only opportunity to buy something hot off the workbench, yeah, then I think it's, you know, it's interesting.
0: Spotting trends is your currency, and your last ask call was about Tiffany. Uh, not a trend, but previous that was on Jade. Yes. Um, what are the current trends in jewellery and how do they come about? Do you spot them? You I try. get a feel for I them I try,
1: I do yes. I really try. Um and I lo- you know, I love to try and, and you know, it's people think that we make up the trends. We don't make them up. They're all out there in the air. It's a question of analysing, spotting them and analysing them. What you know, what what do they what do they mean? Like men's jewelry actually I think the first article I wrote for how to spend it was on men's jewelry which was you know more than 25 years ago now and I saw that that was that was a trend and of course that has been developing over the over the past couple of of decades the trends now well Jade yeah Jade is is very interesting in that it has moved from almost a, exclusively an Asian obsession in a way. To really appealing to Western buyers, Why? and because it's a material that's that's rare, it has a wonderful story. Again, it's really deeply emotive. It's you know, it's full of mysticism, and it's very beautiful. Mm. And I think that the market at the moment is is driven by the value of rarity. And imperial jade is incredibly rare. I think now great collectors, especially wealthy Asian collectors. They all have their 10-carat D flawless diamond or several of them. They probably have coloured diamonds, natural pearls, and this is the next sort of material. But of course, I'm talking about, I was mentioning Asian designers. They they understand jade, but I think so. collectors now in the West are looking for, for the next big thing. It's all about yeah, exclusive, ultimate. I mean, the al-
0: absolute
1: in exclusivity, rarity, but beauty as well and and storytelling and Jade has got an incredible story.
0: I feel we could talk for thousands of years. <laughs> um, so I just want to know, I always ask, other than your own curated exhibitions, what has been the most outstanding tour exhibition you've been to in the past year or 10 years or of all time for you? Um,
1: of course, the the Altani collection. Oh
0: yeah, um, you mentioned that. Yeah. Yes,
1: which I, you know, again, I was I was privileged to to catalogue the contemporary jewels in the collection of Sheikh Hamad of Qatar. He had the most magnificent collection of of Indian jewelled arts. So that was that was an Incredible uh, exhibition.
0: Was that quite recent? It was. It was it only in Venice, or was it touring? Because I saw when I was in Venice a few years ago. Um,
1: well, there was an exhibition in the Metropolitan in New York, in the V and A, and then I was lucky enough to see it actually in 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 Beijing, in its wow. entirety. Wow. Yeah, that was that was staggering. And and actually, because yeah, we have to mention talking of the Metropolitan Museum, the, the exhibition of jewels by which was, gosh, must be good. Ten years ago, or more I
0: think it was two thousand
1: one. Gosh, oh, two thousand
0: two. Goodness, yeah. was it? Do you want to talk in, a bit about Jar?
1: Yes, I would love to. I mean, Joel has been something of a mentor to me. I'm wow. Very lucky. I—he's an incredible artist, and he changed everything in the late eighties and the nineties. I call him a postmodern artist. I'm not sure if I'm using the term absolutely correctly, but before Jar maybe apart from from someone like Bulgari who was making incredible jewels in the 1980s, jewellery was not about anything. You know, talk about jewellery not being relevant to lifestyles. It just had no connection mm. to fashion, to culture in any way. And I remember very well, I think at that time I was sort of shifting from writing about antique jewellery to contemporary jewellery or adding contemporary jewellery and, you know, just saying lots and lots of, pavé work on plain talk necklaces and it just wasn't it wasn't about anything if, if you understand it didn't have any story it was what i call pure surface stylism you know just a little design and jar changed all that so he's incredibly knowledgeable incredibly cultivated again someone who's a great artist in in any field and he he brought cultural layers and cultural references to jewellery. He made jewellery about you know, a story.
0: And what I find remarkable is the fact that he's created a brand without creating a brand in the sense that he's so exclusive. Mm. He, I hear mm. that he only makes jewels for, for you. You don't ask him. And he has to be recommended by people. To be
1: re- uh, yes, um, yeah. No
0: one knows where he is in in <laughs> <lot> France. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> I think everyone knows, a, there's a, but he just no. has this incredible aura of exclusivity He's got an around aura, him. Yes, I mean, there's which this is enhanced
1: mystique that has grown up around him. You know whether or not he did that on purpose. I, I doubt. I think it's just it's it's his nature. It's it's his personality, but he changed. He changed everything and of course he pushed craftsmanship to you know new new levels of virtuosity with his degrade pave work he broke through the barriers he used stones that were neglected you know spinels sphens colored sapphires he painted he painted with gemstones and perhaps just as important that he really spawned several generations of individual designer jewelers I mean, my designers in Vivarium would not be doing what they're doing had it not really? been for Jarre. there weren't really any individual artist wow. jewelers at the time. You know, not since maybe you know you had Bel um before that, but not for for a very long time.
0: So he really changed how jewels were were seen, were made, mm-hmm. how they look, yeah. and also the next yeah. generation, the
1: next several generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, wonderful. And I, I've I've often i often googled his his pieces, and you you say like almost like a painting. You can see some. I don't know if it was on a flower or a butterfly, correct me if I'm cl- completely wrong, but one, you look at it and it's just the gemstones, just, they just change colour. It's really it's something unbelievable. else. Unbelievable. Unbelievable.
1: unbelievable. And he brought emotion back to jewellery, you know, and it was really, yeah, devoid of emotion before that.
0: Which leads me on to my next question, which has nothing to do with it. What are your thoughts on manufactured diamonds? <laughs> I <can't. laughs> um, but I, I, I just want to you step don't, in. Don't. I just want to step in here a little bit because actually I, I watched the Netflix documentary on the Beers. I forgot the name of it recently. It's quite an old one, and they came out and said about manufactured diamonds, lab diamonds. You have to call them lab grown. Lab grown diamonds. Created, yes, and yeah. they just almost okay. convinced me. And they said, well, actually, these diamonds are for those who want to who don't want to wear the real diamonds on flights. And also, we just brought out a cheaper version mm. for those who don't have the money. What does Vivian Becker think do, of that? I
1: don't agree with that. I think scientifically or technologically, I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think it's that the, the man is able to create diamonds. I think it's a completely different product. I think it's a, it's a genre, or it should be in its own right. I've gone back and forth. I will be honest and say I do not like the way that the... Lab-grown diamond jewelers start off by trying to destroy the natural diamond industry. Yeah. Wow,
0: I didn't know that. Yeah,
1: they 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 offer it as as the sustainable alternative to mined diamonds or natural or earth earth diamonds, and I don't think that's right. I think it is, as I say, I think it's very very interesting from a technological point of view. It can never rival the the emotion or the rarity or the wonder. I mean, the wondrousness of of a natural diamond, but I think you know it's horses for courses. It's it's what I really regret is that lab grown diamonds are not used in a much more innovative way. They've been used in really traditional, dare I say it, boring jewelry, and I don't see the point of that. I'm also just you know trying to understand their sustainability credentials or lack of them how much energy is used in producing lab grown diamonds but i think that that is improving and that and that's changing but i would just like them to be used in a way that a natural diamond cannot be used otherwise i don't see the point of it
0: and also you know when you buy a diamond you're buying thousands and thousands of years of an earth produced billions,
1: billions, 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 billions. of years, and that's yeah.
0: you know, and you have that on your your mm. around your neck mm-hmm. on your mm. on your finger. Yeah. Surely that's it's an a
1: earth a treasure, magic, it's an a earth treasure exactly. Yes, yeah.
0: To me, it's almost like buying a fake painting or a real painting. Picasso, or not a Picasso, but what do I know?
1: Well, it's yeah, it's like buying a you know print that's re, you know that can be reproduced. Yeah, and also what I again I'm trying to to understand is that uh, lab-grown diamonds are in danger of becoming like fast diamonds, like fast jewellery. I mean, you know, the, more and more and more can be produced. The prices will go down and down, I mean, unless unless they're very large and very difficult to produce. So there can be no secondary market in, yeah. guess, and and then what happens to them?
0: would you say they're at? generally a, a scourge of the jewelry world or are they embraced at different levels
1: no they're, they're no they're not a scourge no 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 I mean there was a lot of talk of you know was it was it going to threaten the natural diamond industry but I don't I don't think so too I think it's a different it's a different product it's a different market i think it will the lab grown diamond will find its own level the right level in the jewelry world maybe create a whole new genre of jewelry personally i'd, I'd rather have swarovski crystal have you know massive piece of wonderful costume jewelry you
0: know
1: (laughs) yeah no
0: um my last question on, on the jewelry world before i ask my my two final questions how does the jewelry world improve its sustainability credentials
1: i think it is i think doing that now certainly i've done a fair amount of research into the diamond industry which i believe now is very very well regulated much more than people think there's a lot of giving back that that goes on it gives a lot to the communities to the mining communities i'm glad to say that there are now women at the top of the of the diamond industry managing directors ceos of big mining companies and corporations and i think that's bringing yeah bringing that you know feminine instinct to a very male dominated industry. As with many other industries, there's quite a lot of greenwashing that goes on. It's hard to to differentiate, you know, what is what is really being worked on and what is just a marketing ploy. But I think that it's much better than it's given credit for. And I think it's working really hard. Certainly mining, gold mining um, is improving. There's um, SMO, the single mine origins which i think are doing an, an amazing job of improving the mining communities and full traceability from the mine to the jewel and uh, there's more there's more that that has to be done there's more that but has it's to be done, done I, get the impression. I think yes it is yeah that's good perhaps to not you know not not quickly enough but it's definitely being done
0: moving away from the jewelry world and looking back on your amazing career vivian what would, would you like your legacy to be Vivian, come
1: um, back. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think I have a legacy, really. I don't think so. I um, for people to understand the meanings of, of jewellery. I mean, I just, I'm really, I guess I am passionate and that's what's kept me in writing about jewellery for, for for so many decades, I would like them to understand that it is um, a very powerful human impulse to adorn. You know that that jewelry is not surface ornament; that we need it. And so many jewelers say to me they almost feel guilty. You know, gosh, people don't need to walk in here; they don't need a piece of jewelry. And I say, actually, they do. They do because the the roots of the jewel day in, in magical objects. And I guess I would like people to understand. Understand the roots of jewelry and what they mean to different civilizations. And as the great Daniel Brush, we haven't spoken about Daniel Brush, great artist, whom I was really privileged to to know and Joanne, work and, with. Yeah, because I um, who passed around. away sadly almost almost a year ago. Daniel taught me so much, and I would like to pay tribute to him. But as you know, Daniel said that jewelry is a conduit to the gods; it's a root to other worlds, other worldliness, And I guess if, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I have got a legacy, but if it was, I would like people to really understand the roles and the meanings and the purpose of the jewel.
0: Wonderful. Last question, going back to so, the art.
1: What's there one more? There is okay. one
0: more uh, page. No, um, which artist, living or dead, would you commission oh to do your portrait? Could be anybody. Of um, Renoir?
1: Yeah, probably Renoir or um, Picasso. That's my
0: choice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who else?
1: Um, or, you know, Lalique in some way. I mean, yeah, I guess Lalique, I would, yeah. There are a lot of profiles, a lot of, you know, carved faces in Lalique's jewellery, and some of them obviously relate to his wife or people he knew or Sarah Bernhardt so yeah probably it would have to be Lalique
0: wonderful and I've got a tiny little Lalique well it's not anecdote but when I had my gallery at Claridge's I remember you know run around the hotel etc etc and there's a little Lalique sculpture just as you come in on the right hand side and it's Mm. just embedded into the wall Um, and it's a light mm. and I always Mm. look at it and I asked who it was and it was Lalique Vivian, this has been the greatest honour and the greatest pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you. Thanks, Nolan.